Hello, welcome to the podcast for the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section of the American Physical Therapy Association. My name is Rachel Tromelin. I'm an Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Today, I'm very lucky to have two esteemed colleagues with me. I will have them introduce themselves. First, we'll go with Julie. Hi, I'm Julie Grove and co-own Cascade Dizziness and Balance Physical Therapy in Seattle, Washington. I've been practicing vestibular rehabilitation for 15 years. Now, Wendy? Hi, I'm Wendy Carinder, and I'm a physical therapist working at the Vestibular Testing Center, an outpatient clinic in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Michigan Health System in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Great. I obtained my vestibular certification in 2003 and my NCS in 2012. Great. Thank you, ladies, for being on with me today. What we're going to talk about is the impact of anxiety on patients with vestibular dysfunction and the vestibular rehab process. I'm going to first present a case of a patient I saw this past summer. Um, she came to me with a diagnosis of Meniere's disease and high drops. However, the first thing that really struck me, um, patient was in, in her mid-60s, 64 years old. The first thing that really struck me about this patient when I went to pick her up is the fact that you know she looked very dis disheveled, like hair very disheveled, um, and was wearing workout clothing, was not wearing a bra, just looked like someone that was just really struggling and not, not very put together at all. Um, and throughout that first session, she very minimally made eye contact. I think really meeting my eyes maybe about 10 to 15 percent of the time and, you know, cried on and off through the evaluation. Her vestibular history is that she presented with dizziness occurring about 10 months prior to evaluation. She had had two main episodes of dizziness, once um, in the fall and once in the previous February. Um, However, she reports these episodes of dizziness lasting a few hours, but they're not as severe or not as typical as what you would expect with Meniere's. Um, she did, however, report that she had been having serious anxiety and lots of life stressors going on at the time. Her husband, with whom she had owned a business and helped with the business a couple years prior, had passed away very suddenly, um, leaving a lot of his business affairs and taxes um, really undone and had not given her a lot of instructions or a lot of instructions how to follow and what to do to tie up loose ends. She was also caring for elderly patients. Um, they did live in an assisted living center. Um, however, she was very involved in their care and helped out with her father who had dementia. And I think he was also very combative as well. And that was very difficult um, for her to handle. So on top of having this, she did have some very, very significant um, life stressors. She also reported to me that symptoms were brought on um, by the stress and anxiety, and she always had symptoms after she visited her parents, um, but the, she was trying to sort of push herself through and kind of hold herself together. Um, her medical history is significant for high blood pressure, osteoarthritis in, in the back, and her goals and initial evaluation was that she wanted to regain her balance and confidence and wanted to regain control over her life. In terms of her objective findings, on evaluation, her ABC was only a 6%, which was very shocking, especially considering this was someone who walked in. She drove a half an hour to get to this clinic. She walked in without an assistive device, and her balance testing on the functional gait assessment was a 24 out of 30. So here you have a really big mismatch 
of what the patient feels like her abilities are versus what her abilities actually are. The modified SITSIB, she scored 30 seconds, conditions one through three, and 13 seconds in condition four. Her gait speed was slower at 0.84 meters per second for self-selected and 1.81 meters per second for fast, which was fast was actually appropriate, but self-selected was slower. Her DHI was high, as you might anticipate as well. She scored an 86 out of 100 on that first visit. So what I really decided, certainly decided, that she did have some underlying vestibular pathology. She did have com complaints consistent with vestibular stuff, but I really think that her anxiety and depression was impacting it significantly. And this woman had very legitimate life stressors that would cause anyone to have uh, that significant response. So I recommended that she start counseling and she was very, very receptive. And I told her that I really wanted her to work with her counseling to work on not only through a lot of this life stress, but to have strategies to handle the anxiety. I started her on a basic program um, similar to what a lot of us would do, VOR exercises, VOR times one, VOR times two, um, and then we progressed through the program, walking with head turns, um, turning her body, really repeating anything that made her dizzy. On the reevaluation, um, approximately a month after that, she demonstrated an improvement of the ABC to 54%, so really significantly helped her gain her confidence, though her FGA only improved two points to 26 out of 30, um, so even though a somewhat improvement in the balance, but definitely significant improvement in the confidence. And her dizziness handicap inventory decreased from 86 all the way down to 56, which surpasses the MDC of 18, so I was very happy to see that. Um, her gait speed at that time improved to 1.2 meters per second and her fast 2.04 meters per second, so starting to get back in those a normal age-related norms. We continued to work on progression of the VOR exercises to working on them walking and working on various activities for balance, such as walking with the eyes closed, um, standing on cushions, anything that really um, made her tap into her vestibular system more. I also completed the SVQ because I thought she might have some uh, difficulties with visual vertigo and the SVQ was 0 0.44, um, which she is not indicative of having visual vertigo according to that measure at that time. Um, she continued to work with me throughout the summer. Um, we had a total of 10 sessions. She did have a slower progression on the exercises and there was definitely a lot of hand-holding during therapy. I think one of the big takeaway messages that I really, after the first couple sessions, like you could just tell that there was this click and I had gained her trust. And I think she really started to believe that she was going to get better and then that really significantly helped her actually get better. As to having a true vestibular diagnosis, I, I don't necessarily agree with her having full-blown Meniere's. Um, however, the physicians did put her on beta histine and had her do a low-salt diet, and she reported that she felt like the low-salt diet helped significantly. So I do believe there was some high drops present as well to explain some of the vestibular symptoms. So it was not all anxiety, but anxiety definitely exacerbated um, what was going on. And each session, we would um, in addition to talking about the exercises and performing the exercises, we would talk about her project, her progress with the counselor, specifically talking about, you know, what kind of strategies is she giving you for anxiety? What have you been doing? So even though I wasn't directly addressing that, I did um, kind of keep track of it. 
And then by the end of therapy, I saw her for um, approximately three months, 10 sessions over three months. Um, her modified SITSIB had improved to 30 seconds in all conditions. FGA was up to 29 out of 30. DHI had decreased to 52. I, of course, would have liked to have seen it drop further. Um, however, I think with the, the anxiety that that probably would would not have gone significantly further. And ABC was up to 68.1%, which I was very happy um, to see that improve as well. Um, so I guess my main takeaway messages are to certainly, you know, I always say they don't call it physical therapy for nothing. You within our scope of practice, trying to help patients along with the therapy and really trying to gain their trust, I found to be very, very effective um, with the session. Uh, so next, I will have Julie describe her case. Thank you. My case involves a 45-year-old female who presented to me in the clinic of January of this year after the onset of emesis, dizziness, and disequilibrium after getting out of bed two weeks earlier. She sought urgent care attention and was diagnosed with BPPD prescribed with meclizine. But when her symptoms didn't resolve, her primary care doctor ended up having her do a steroid injection and referring her to neurotology. She was presumed to have vestibular neuronitis and was referred to uh, vestibular rehabilitation with a pertinent history of a complete left uh, sensory neural hearing loss back in 1996 and a remote history of motion sensitivity and headaches. The interesting thing was that she practiced home health nursing and was had an extremely active lifestyle, including paddleboarding, biking, rollerblading, playing street hockey, and walking her dog along the shores of the Puget Sound. On her initial examination, she endorsed symptoms of feeling unsteadiness, right staggering, nausea, a tight band of headaches, aural pressure, anxiety, fatigue, swimmy-headedness, lightheadedness, as well as light sound, smell sensitivity, along with her motion and visual motion sensitivity. Her dizziness handicap inventory was a 62 over 100, and her ABC was only 10%. She ambulated into the clinic with a slow gait velocity using a single point cane and really was unable to complete the functional gait assessment. So I started her with the DGI, which revealed a 14 out of 24 fall risk. On examination, she demonstrated a spontaneous right beating nystagmus without fixation, which was increased in right gaze and increased post head shake. She had a positive head thrust test as well as uh, difficulty uh, with convergence, insufficiency being demonstrated, and some slightly saccadic pursuits. She had no findings of postural hypotension or BPPD, but her postural control in indicated increased sway on Romberg, as well as condition three and a loss of balance on condition four on the modified CAT-SIB. She was unable to drive, work, or recreate at that time. So we decided to initiate a plan of care of weekly vestibular rehab. I started her with some reading of um, health literacy on VITA, including the possible symptoms she might experience, human balance system, and how postural control works, as well as um, understanding what central compensation includes. We just started with some simple sensory reweighting in the corner with eyes open and closed, and some head motion with task breakdown. I asked her to progress her lower extremity stance challenges, start um, walking with her spouse using her single point cane as needed, and then initiate some sit-to-stand exercises with verbal cueing for diaphragmatic breathing. By her second visit, she had her VNG and MRI scheduled, but was complaining of severe headaches during her menstrual cycle. She was complaining of palpitations and her right eye twitching. 
she told me she had a baseline uh, symptoms of wooziness and nausea rated at 2 out of 10. We were working on progressive um, balance training, somatosensory reweighting, breathing, and I asked her to work on dynamic gait activities with me in the clinic using her single point cane as well as at home. Over several weeks, we were working on progressive balance exercises, and I really tried to um, get her to identify symptoms associated with her fight-flight responses, the racing sensation she would experience in her chest, tingling in her hands or chest, the heat wave that would come over her, and how that fostered a shortened breath. I asked her to use proprioceptive cues and uh, surface orientation as well as diaphragmatic breathing and really have an internal dialogue about identifying those fight or flight responses and then differentiating that from the error signals we were trying to generate with her postural control, dynamic gait, and really slow initial VOR training. So it was important for her to um, identify what was facilitating compensation versus what was an inhib inhibiting that compensation and um, increasing her anxiety. In addition, I had asked her to track her headaches. By her fourth visit, um, the VNG confirmed a 64% caloric weakness. Her MRI was unremarkable, but she was still having kind of these constant baseline symptoms of dizziness and nausea at a, two, at a 2 over 10. So we worked on slow, consistent progressions, but by her fifth visit, she was saying she was having another severe um, days of headaches with her cycle. Her life stressors had increased with an unexpected death in the family, and she was starting to really worry about getting back to work because she'd been on a long-term disability policy. Despite that, her dynamic gait in index improved to a 20 over 24, and she was able to perform the functional gait assessment. Um, she scored a 21 over 30, and she was able to at least start um, progressing her VOR times 1 training, as well as progressing uh, dynamic gait with head motion and increasingly uh, Frequent, turn, or frequent turns. Her DVA improved to a three-line loss, but she was complaining of oscillopsia in stores, in um, outdoor environments, and she was concerned about driving and expressing some fear avoidance behaviors regarding that. We completed a progress report on her ninth visit in March. Um, again, she still had these persistent baseline symptoms of dizziness. She had a second death in the family, so her psychosocial stressors were really um, prevalent, and she was really feeling the pressure to get back to work, um, even on a part-time basis. She could only tolerate small amounts of computer work, and um, she knew she was going to be able to. She was going to need to use her EMR for return to work. Her FGA um, was a 22 out of 30. Her DHI had improved only to a 54 out of 100, and she wasn't using her cane anymore. And we talked really about how um, stress, life stressors, um, illness, her cycle, and sleep disruption could contribute to decompensation, and that these were temporary but um, important issues to identify. She complained of oscillopsia still in novel environments and visual motion sensitivity. And it was suggested that she follow up with her physician and seek some counseling and additional support. In the clinic, we started biofeedback so we could quantify her diaphragmatic breathing and get her started on um, a real substantial program of biofeedback training. I also asked her to um, discuss a neurology consult with her referring physician um, at her next appointment. So those consults were completed and she started counseling um, and was referred for a neurology consultation. In the meantime, in the spring, we were working on progressive 
aerobic training, uh, her VOR times one with increasing uh, visual conflict dose space um, depending upon her tolerance level. I asked her to work on multitasking on our multi-sensory balance training surfaces and initiate sports-specific training. By June, her DHI had improved to a 38 out of 100, and she finally got into the neurologist who consulted and prescribed both prophylactic and abortive headache medication. Her FGA improved to a 26 over 30, and her DVA really normalized to a one to two line loss. So we reduced um, physical therapy to once a month or, or one to two times a month, and she was to return to work part-time in July to home health nursing. Um, the focus um, throughout, and in particular with return to work, was the idea of pacing her activities, energy conservation, maintaining good sleep hygiene, so that she would um, be successful with her return to work activities. By August, she was riding a bike, just starting some tennis folly, but she was still having difficulty with her headaches, and her neurologist really um, needed to adjust her medication. Um, in October, we discharged her um, with a DHI of 20. Her sick q I had measured earlier, it would, had only improved to a 1.6 versus a 1.8. Her ABC was 80%. Her postural control and functional gait assessment had all normalized. And her global rating of change scale had improved to a six, which is considered a great deal better. So um, just thoughts with her were, in retrospect, I'd love to have had a neurology consult earlier. Um, I think it, one of the things that I wish I had done was done a hospital anxiety and depression scale a little earlier just um, to kind of quantify that. And then just have a lot of conversations about um, what the expectations of compensation were, how fight flight can um, inhibit that, and not just assume because she's a nurse that she would just automatically know these things. So, um, Wendy, how about you? Tell me, tell us about your case. Sure, I'd be glad to. So, I worked with a 48-year-old female with a two-year history of motion-provoked dizziness, sensitivity to high-pitched sounds, and daily imbalance following um, a moving vehicle accident. Past medical history included a bleeding ulcer, depression, anxiety, and dizziness. Socially, this patient lived alone and she was not working. She actually lived one and a half hours away from the hospital, so that was a little bit of a challenge for me. Medical workup by otolaryngology did reveal a left superior canal dehiscence, and she did elect to undergo surgery. Um, I had the convenience of seeing her two weeks prior to surgery to instruct her in some exercises that we do with many of these cases just to, you know, to help them have a, a really good outcome. And she presented with many questions about the type of assistance she would need after surgery. She insisted that she would need a home health care aid um, to help her and also to help care for her cats. Um, she presented with a dizziness handicap inventory score of 60 out of 100. Um, she was able to do Romberg and stand on foam, eyes open and eyes closed for 30 seconds. She had some mild motion sensitivity, rated 1 to 2 out of a 5-point scale, where 5 is severe, for horizontal and vertical head movements. Her initial DGI score was 20 out of 24. Her timed up and go was 11 seconds. At that time, I had planned to see her two weeks and then again six weeks after surgery, which is kind of standard for this um, patient population with a very strong emphasis on her home exercise program. Um, 
much like you did with your patients, we focused on habituation exercises, VOR, and walking. Her goals were to um, get back, of course, to taking care of her home and her cats, to return to driving, and re return to community activities. I actually got a call from her one week after surgery um, reporting that she was still dizzy and I told her that this was a normal expectation at this time and that we, we would reevaluate when she came in in the following week. She came back reporting she did have some good compliance with the home exercise program, um, all about the walking program. She was struggling with that. She did have one home health care visit but did not qualify for any additional services. So she was able to enlist a friend to help her for caring for her cats. At this time, her dizziness handicap inventory score increased 12 points to 72 out of 100. There was no difference in her DVA test. She had a little more challenge with standing on foam, eyes closed, which was limited to 15 seconds. Actually, her DDI score increased one point to 21 out of 24, and her timed up and go remained unchanged at 11 seconds. At this point, um, in addition to the habituation, VOR, and walking exercises, I added some balance exercises, again focusing more on some proprioceptive inputs, um, adding some head movements to her walking program, and really wanted her to try to walk, walk outside to maybe enlist her friend to help her with that. At this point, I, I felt she was demonstrating the, the expected re level of recovery for two weeks post-op. She came back six weeks post-op post-surgery, and most patients that I worked with um, usually at this point are ready for discharge and return to work, but she was still having some pretty significant dizziness, um, especially provoked by busy environments like the grocery store when scrolling on the computer. She had imbalance when standing in the shower with her eyes closed. She reported this bobblehead sensation when um, trying to do a little driving just in, during the daytime locally. Um, and then she felt very, very uneasy in wide open spaces, which was limiting her ability to go out in the community. At this point, her DHI did improve 18 points to a 54 out of 100. She was able to stand on foam, eyes closed for 30 seconds. Her tug improved to 9 seconds, and she was still having significant motion sensitivity, reading um, 360-degree turns at a 4 out of 5. I really reinforced the walking program, amongst other things. Um, she came back at three months post-operatively, and now her dizziness handicap inventory score had decreased again, now a 42 out of 100. Um, she was complaining a lot about the, again, oscillopsia and visual vertigo in grocery stores. So we added um, some gaze stabilization and walking added the, some conflict to her VOR times one exercises and continued the habituation exercises. Um, at this point, she was able to walk on the treadmill inside her home, but again, she was very fearful of walking outside of her house. At five months, I saw her back for a follow-up and her DHI actually worsened by 14 points. Um, her tug was steady at 10 seconds. Her DGI was steady at 22 seconds. She still had considerable motion sensitivity. And so at this point, what I recommended, um, and I helped her find another vestibular therapist closer to home so she could get some more one-on-one -on -one visits just trying to maximize her functional potential. 
she came to me six months later or 11 months after surgery and she had a, a terrifying event with dizziness after an airplane flight to see her sister about three hours away. Um, she was seen in the emergency room treated with meclizine and Zofran and when she came for this visit she told me she was still relying heavily on the meclizine. Um, we had a long discussion about how that was not going to help her get better and she really needed to try to avoid the use of it. At this point her dizziness handicap inventory score had increased 12 points and was now back to a 68 out of 100. Although all her balance tests were normal, her vestibular exam revealed no spontaneous gaze or post-head shake nystagmus, um, and her uh, dynamic gait index score was also um, 22 out of 24, so approaching normal. Um, again, a lot of patient education this time on sleep, on stress reduction, trying to get her again outside a little bit more um, into the community. She returned one month later, so this was now one month after surgery, saying she had recently been to her doctor to try to help figure out what was going on. Um, there was some possible orthostatic hypotension or even some hypothyroids, so she really had a, a lot of um, attention to her, her medical condition. Um, at this visit, I did recommend that she seek some psychiatric or psychological intervention, and the patient did agree. I got to see her one more time, which was 18 months after surgery. Um, she was involved with seeing a psychiatrist once a month and was placed on some medicine. Um, she had gone to a neurologist, again, just trying to seek some answers for, for some of her um, symptoms. And the neurologist thought she might have positional vertigo, so we did Dick's Hall Pike testing, and as you would expect, it was negative. So my last visit with her, her dizziness handicap inventory score was still a 64 out of 100, but her balance was normal. Her dynamic gait index was 23 out of 24. Her tug was 10 seconds, but she continued to have pretty significant motion sensitivity. Um, overall, we saw her for eight visits um, in one and a half years, plus the extra PT she had. Again, functionally, she looked good, but she did not feel so good. Um, she was able to drive some short distances during the daytime. She was able to care for her cats, but she still had significant difficulty walking in the community, especially when adding head movements. Um, I think with her, what I learned is I agree that just trying to gain their trust is very, very important. They need somebody who can, who can listen to them. Um, I found that you definitely need a very much a slower progression, have to kind of limit the exercises that you give them at one time so they can really focus on them. Um, and I think a symptom journal in retrospect might have been helpful for this patient just so she had some way of an, an outlet um, for some of her symptoms. Very interesting cases. Thank you, Julie and Wendy. One of the big things that I see as a similarity, definitely between Wendy's case and my case, and also somewhat in Julie's cases as well, was the very high level of subjective measures. The, the ABC and the DHI reported high levels of disability. However, objectively, the patients did quite well. So I don't know if either one of you guys would like to comment, maybe Wendy first, on the mismatch between the subjective and objective objective and what role that plays in activity restriction and patients not going out into the community. 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, common with other patients we see too. Um, I think, you know, these patients sometimes have really, they overanalyze their symptoms and they have this very heightened attention to the physical symptoms. Um, and they, maybe it's almost a catastrophizing, um, you know, situation. And it's, um, yeah, the wide open spaces, they just really don't feel comfortable at all in that environment. And from some reading that I did after seeing this patient, it might have been good to think about doing some excuse me, desensitization exposure therapy with um, situational exposure exercises, like for returning to the grocery store, where they take it in different steps and gradually increase their exposure to those very stimulating um, environments. Julie, I think one of the really unique things you did was um, tapping into the patient recognizing her fight and flight response and uh, using the proprioceptive cues and trying to decrease that. Um, how do you feel that helped the patient? Well, regardless of her being a nurse or not, um, I find that if I can lay the groundwork at the be very beginning of the treatment, um, plan of care where we can say, listen, everyone who walks through that door to see me is going to experience some elevated fight-flight responses, fatigue, and that that's just a normal part of having a vestibular disorder. It's a, a normal part of the secondary sequelae, and you're not alone with it. And identifying what's fight-flight versus what might be um, facilitatory for central compensation I think, think helps them um, frame different situations that might come up. I really try to use that to empower people to say, um, hey, I can progress some of my home exercises at home. I'm getting this error signal, and I'm challenging myself, and now I'm starting to master things. Versus my symptoms are up. I'm dealing with a headache. I'm recognizing that these extra stressors of um, really feeling like I need to get back to work or having a death in the family is really ramping up my um, symptoms of either headache or anxiety or general dizziness. And then I might need to back down a little bit more, focus more on aerobic conditioning to help promote serotonin levels and mood stabilization. I try to keep it really simple for patients and say, you know, use the S's as your mechanism of identifying whether you're under elevated stress, coming down with some kind of sickness, whether there's some sleep disturbance or you have um, cycle-related symptoms going up. And then on the flip side, I really say positive outlook equates to a positive outcome. So it's really important to keep that um, perspective, be patient with the process, and be persistent with your exercises. So um, trying to keep things simple and an invisible <laughs> related problem I think is important for them so that they know that um, this all makes sense neurophysiologically to us. Yeah, Julie, those are some really great sayings. I think you should put them on a t-shirt. <laughs> and, and, and sell it to all of us because I could definitely wear that into the clinic. That would be very yeah. helpful. I think I was it, thinking a ball. <laughs> we could the, bounce the ball and they can identify it as they're walking down the hallway. Identify all the letters. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the other similarities between our cases was just the fact that they were prolonged and that at a lot of times um, there was uh, a spacing a spacing out and actually giving the patient a significant amount of time to work on these things and make progress. Uh, Wendy, would you like to comment how that you feel like did that help or hinder your patient? 
Um, you know, I, I think it, in my case it kind of hindered her. I wish she was a little bit closer so I could have had a little bit more direct contact with her. It's so hard to get to our facility sometimes that, you know, it's, it makes it challenging because it makes people dizzy even, even coming to a, a large um, hospital environment like that. Um, so, yeah, I think in my case it actually kind of hindered, but at the same time I do think they need some extra time um, to, to get better. Yeah, I would just like to add to that, um, I mean, what I think what all of us did was we really identified that we needed the team approach to help manage these patients. Um, in my case, I needed a counselor because the tools in my toolbox for trying to use a positive um, framing only went so far and we needed some counseling to help her um, really cope with what was happening from a medical disability standpoint and help her focus on um, attaining central compensation to the best of her ability. In addition, we needed a neurologist to help with medical management. And we should remember not that we don't need to be practicing in silos as physical therapists, that we have a team and the team is there to support each patient. Yeah, fantastic point, Julie. Actually, one of the more interesting referrals I had made for this case, um, knowing that the finances in her husband's business were such a significant stressor, um, I have a very good friend who's a financial planner. And so I had given her, I don't know if she ever followed up with it, but I had given her her contact information. And, and I think even just knowing that was like, okay, you know, I can handle this. I can sort through it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, Wendy, any comment on the impact of the team or impact of counseling? Um, yes, I, I do think the team is very, very important too. Um, counseling with this patient, I think it would have been better to get her involved in counseling sooner than later. And, and because of this patient, I'm recognizing that a little bit, a little bit sooner on which patients to, to recommend that for. Um, I think in Rachel and our patients, we had some trouble too with some limited family and social support, and I think that very much affects, you know, how the patient progresses as well. Yes, de um, definitely. They're the handholders in the clinic, but then they really—it's nice to have that family member that can take over your role in the home environment. Mm -hmm. And my patient was very adamant, even though, you know, she sort of was very overwhelmed that she was like, she has an adult kids who have small children. And she said, you know, I don't want to rely on them. I don't want them to help me. They're busy. They have a lot to do. But right. she, she felt very conflicted because she's like, you know, I want to be there as a grandmother and do these things, but I just can't. And it was, it was very upsetting for her. But then um, she did it at the end of therapy when she had improved one of the things that she was really proud of herself for doing was going to Grandparents Day at her grandchildren's school, and that made her very, very happy. Perfect. I think one of the roles, you know, we can play is just recognizing when these patients do have excessive stress and anxiety, and we can counsel them on how to reduce it. Like Ju Julie talked about, you know, sleep is important, hydration is important, um, a regular exercise is important. Um, and, and yeah, so I think that's a big part of our role that we need to make sure that we, we teach each patient that we see. Definitely. Great point. Uh, do either of you ladies have any final um, insights or any final thoughts? Well, I just wanted to add that I really liked what Wendy said in terms of having an opportunity to um, examine her patient preoperatively and establish a rapport and get a sense of what that family support was looking like, what were the expectations of the patient. and um, it really helps uh, the therapist plan out 
how they're going to um, address a rehab course of care. And it, even though it sounds kind of simplistic, I think it can be really important for patients who are undergoing a, a craniotomy of any kind that they have um, initial exposure to their rehab team. Great. Yeah, I agree. It's very helpful. Great. Wendy, any other final closing thoughts? Um, I think, you know, like we've touched on before, very important to gain that patient trust. Um, we're good listeners and the patients appreciate that. I think with this patient population, you do need to think about a slower progression, um, maybe start in a calmer, quieter environment, and then gradually add these visual and auditory distractions. Um, use a lot of positive reinforcements, reassurance that their diagnosis is real and will respond to treatment. Great. Well, thank you, ladies, very much for being on. I appreciate it, and we're finished for today. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks. Thank you, Rachel.